Welcome to another edition of EDS at Union Now. Dave Giffen joins Dean Douglas for a conversation about how the virus is affecting unhoused people. He's been involved at Coalition for the Homeless since 1988 and is currently their executive director. Remember that the video version of this and all of our conversations are available on our Facebook page. I am very privileged to have joining me today for this conversation, Mr. David Giffen. He is the executive director of New York's Homeless Coalition. Thank you, David, for taking the time from your very busy schedule of tireless work to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for inviting me to, to join you in this. David, we're gonna jump right in. There's so much to cover and so much that I hope we can bring to the attention of those who are joining us today. This COVID-19 crisis has shed an even more glaring spotlight on the endemic injustices and inequality in this country that have in many respects been ignored or allowed to go unabated. Uh, for sure, we can say that in regard to the crisis of homelessness in our country. As you and I talk right now, there are more than 500,000 people who are homeless in this country. 200,000 people will find themselves living on the street tonight. In New York City alone, there will be more than 62,000 people who will find themselves in shelters tonight, and more than 14,000 of those will be family groups. David, when we think of the homeless, quote unquote, we talk about statistics, but these are our neighbors. These are our citizens. These are our friends. Can you take us for a moment behind these statistics? Sure, sure. And, and I do want to um, underscore a little bit that, that those statistics don't even really capture the real magnitude of this problem. Um, that those represent people who are just homeless on a given night. You know, tonight there are more than 62,000 people in the shelter system, thousands of people on the streets. Over the course of the year, it's multiples of that number. Um, there is no such thing as a homeless person as a type of citizen or a type of person in our country. This is a, a, a temporary ephemeral condition that people go through. It's just the extreme manifestation of poverty and the lack of resources for a certain portion, portion of our population. Um, when most people try to envision in their mind, what, what is a homeless person in my community? They usually do think about the person they see on the street. And that tends to be an adult man or woman who um, you know, likely has a psychiatric or physical disability, maybe a substance use issue. And um, that, that is not necessarily inaccurate when you're talking about those on the streets. But that again is just a, a fraction of the people uh, in New York City, for example, that we we're talking about. For every one of those people you see on the streets, there's 10 times that many in the shelter system. Okay. And for all of those people in the shelter system, there's probably 20 times that many who are just living on the brink of homelessness, that are living in 
uh, unstable, illegal, uh, unsafe housing conditions um, who are just really trying to get by day after day. So when we're thinking about homelessness, it shouldn't be thought of as, as something describing an other. Um, homelessness is affecting everybody in our community. As you pointed out, uh, there's more than 14,000 families in the shelter system tonight. That's 22,000 children. Um, right. Half of those kids are under the age of five. Uh, so homelessness is something that is just affecting families who are struggling to get by, who are trying to pay their rent, unable to pay rent and getting evicted um, because they can't afford the skyrocketing rents in New York City. Um, these aren't people who are choosing to live on the streets. This is, you know, the, the typical profile in the family shelter system would be a mother with two kids who is either fleeing domestic violence or perhaps was working as, for example, a home health aide whose hours had been cut mm -hmm. and rental arrears started building up over time. And she comes home one day to find that there's an eviction notice uh, taped to her door. And then what does she have to do? Take her kids, put all of her belongings in a plastic bag, go to the intake facility for the family shelter system. And there's only one intake facility that's up in the Bronx, travel with her two little kids up to this one intake facility, uh, spend sometimes hours and hours and hours there waiting to get processed. And uh, you know, only 40% of the families that apply for shelter are initially found eligible. Um, there's certain hoops that they have to jump through. They have to uh, evidence every place that they slept for the last two years. Mm -hmm. They have to prove that they don't have uh, uh, an alternate to staying in the shelter system that night. So very often the shelter intake worker will tell them, well, you were staying with your aunt, for example, for the last two weeks. Why can't you go back there and not believe her when she says, well, there was you know, a disharmony in the household, the aunt kicked me out, refused to let me and my kids uh, stay there anymore. So they get caught in this catch-22 very often. Um, that's where we as a coalition for the homeless come in because at that point we advocate for families like that to help them get in the shelter system so they're not, God forbid, sleeping on the streets with their kids. So what, what we see with homelessness in New York City is primarily families, just that's mothers right. and kids that aren't able to make ends meet and then end up having nowhere to stay but the shelter system. Thanks, David. You've really helped to sort of demythologize, if you will, uh, this whole notion of a person who was homeless, that it's their fault, that these are people who uh, are, if they just tried uh, to do better, they could have a home and do better. No, these are people, just individuals just like us. These are family systems, people struggling to make it and not being able by no fault of their own, not because they aren't hard workers, not being able to make it uh, through the work that they are doing or the jobs that they are doing and one paycheck away. Uh, from finding themselves with no place to go. And that impacts the entire collective, human collective. And we see that uh, in this crisis, this health crisis that we now find ourselves in. So I wanna turn to that, uh, if I can, for a moment. I'm struck, of course, by uh, the necessary uh, guidelines for us to shelter in place. And again, I must, at least comment on the privilege 
of us being able to shelter in place, that it is a privilege that we have people who are concerned that for our health and that we have a place to shelter so that we can indeed maintain the quality of our health. And it is to shelter in place is a lifeline uh, mm -hmm. for us right now. That's a privilege to, to be able to shelter in place. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a handicap. It's not maybe inconvenient, but it's, it's a privilege. We recognize that privilege even more when there are people who can't shelter in place because they have no place to shelter. And that shelters anyway, even not in a crisis is a lifeline. So I'm struck. There are governors that have said to the homeless, well, you know, you need to, you're exempt from sheltering in place, but you need to make every effort to find a shelter. David? Well, it, it's, it's interesting uh, terminology that you use there when you say it is a privilege to shelter in place because that is the fundamental problem, isn't it? That housing should not be a privilege. That's exactly right. And that's, that's right. what it has become in our society. Housing should be a fundamental right. Yes. You know, this is something we say over and over again. Housing is healthcare. There is no way to take care of yourself. Look, people, we all have problems. All of us have problems. And we get through tough times in our lives by relying on our families, on our networks of friends, on the resources that we have, and on having a place that we can go and collect ourselves, a place where we can go and heal and be safe and work through whatever problems we have. If you're sleeping on the streets, if you're sleeping in the shelter, that is a privilege that you do not have. How does somebody who's trying to deal with undereducation or unemployment or a lack of skills or a psychiatric or a physical disability or a substance use issue, how do you solve those problems when you're sleeping on the streets? These are all things that we actually know how to address. We can right. help people with any one of these issues, but you can't do it if you're sleeping on the streets. And now you, you put this in the context of something like this pandemic, and it really underscores how tenuous life is for people that don't have the privilege of a home. And it, it's extremely dangerous for people who are homeless. For one, people who are homeless don't have the privilege of exercising the preventative measures that we've all been told to do. How do you shelter at home? How do you shelter in place if you don't have a home to go to? How do you self-quarantine if you don't have a place to go to? People who are uh, homeless people who are in congregate shelters are living in dorms and congregate facilities where you have 12 to 18 people in a room, a few hundred people in a shelter maybe. There is no reasonable way to practice uh, social distancing in that kind of situation. Homeless people who are unsheltered on the streets can't even wash their hands. You know, they don't have running water and soap where they can go to every time they touch a public surface, a door handle or something to go and wash their hands. So they're very vulnerable to contracting the virus. Once contracting the virus, homeless people are also much more likely to have a very serious reaction to it. We've all been now hearing about the underlying health conditions that lead to a higher mortality rate things like diabetes, things like hypertension, COPD, any kind of respiratory illness, heart disease. These are all conditions um, that have very high incidence in the, the homeless population. So that once a homeless person contracts the virus, uh, he or she is much more likely 
to have a very adverse reaction to it. Uh, we've done some calculations here at the coalition just about the, the mortality rates within the homeless population. So as of yesterday, there were 53, uh, 52 uh, homeless deaths in New York City. Mm. Um, so if you do an age-adjusted analysis to look at, to determine the mortality rate, um, you're seeing 184 of every 1,000 people uh, in the homeless population uh, die from the virus. Mm. That's versus 117 per 1,000 in the general population. What that says is you have a 57% higher chance of perishing from the virus if you're homeless. Now, these statistics are all very early. There's been no real testing in the system. There's many people who've passed away that we don't know if it was yet from the virus. So as, as time goes by, we're going to have a more accurate understanding of, of the statistics and of the actual impact. But there is no question that if you are homeless, you are much more vulnerable to the virus and much more likely to pass away because of it. Now, with that, understand that we're seeing an increase in homelessness in New York City. Yep the virus. There is people who had been living uh, in, in overcrowded living situations in which somebody in the household might become symptomatic. So that person or somebody else in that household ends up leaving that, that home and becoming homeless. Um, there's been obviously a, a very large economic impact as a result of, of the lockdowns. People are losing their jobs. So we are already seeing a surge in, in street homelessness in the city. Uh, one of the Coalition for the Homeless's programs is a mobile soup kitchen that's out on the streets seven nights a week. In, in 35 years, we've never missed a night, not during Hurricane Sandy, not during 9-11. We're out there. So we're out there during this crisis. At just our first distribution site, the number of people we feed each night has gone from about 180 to more than 400. And a lot of these are new faces. These are people that, um, for example, migrant workers who had been renting rooms by the week with whatever day labor they could get, that work has dried up. They're now on the streets. Uh, most of those folks are afraid to go into the shelter system. They view it as a Petri dish. You know, they think if I go in the shelter system, there are so many people who've been exposed to the virus, I'm going to be exposed to it myself. It's not an unreasonable fear. So we're getting a lot of requests for sleeping bags as well. So we have more people on the streets. We also have fewer services now. We have soup kitchens that have had to close, food pantries, drop-in centers, clothing providers. And so there's fewer uh, uh, folks out there who are able to help keep people alive. So it's become a very, very dire circumstance for, for folks so, on the streets. David, a couple of things that you've said uh, that I just want to highlight. Uh, and one, that housing, which is a lifeline for all of us, is a human right. The other thing that you have made so clear is that by the time we are talking about people with uh, out housing, without stable housing, by the time we are talking about people in shelters, people on the streets, we are talking about a complex chain of events and, and lack of appropriate services for human beings that have come together. It's a complex reality, of you will, of injustices that have come together that the end point in some respects 
is homelessness. And so there have been failures in the system way before we get to the point of people being without the human right of a place to live. The, the other thing that you've made so clear is that as it is a human right, we are talking about human beings. We are talking about sacred human beings and that everybody that has breath is sacred. And that brings me to faith communities. It seems to me that there should be no community more concerned about the way in which people are treated and regarded as if they're expendable. And now we're in a situation where it become very easy for these most vulnerable communities, the least of these, as we like to say, to now become disposable with the blink of the eye. And so this is an indictment on our society, but it is also an indictment in particular on faith communities. This has happened on our watch. And so David, I know I've worked with you for a couple of years now, and you have over and over again expressed to me and others your disappointment on, in the lack of consistency when it comes to the engagement of faith leaders and the faith community mm -hmm. uh, in dealing with this issue when it comes to the sacred human beings that we have uh, neglected, disregarded. Could you speak to not only your disappointment, but the ways in which you would like to see faith communities and that faith communities ought to step up to the plate uh, now and beyond? Sure, sure, thank you, Kelly. Um, I'd like to say first that it's, there are individual uh, houses of worship, um, individuals and congregations that work very, very hard every day trying to bring relief to trying to provide food and shelter um, to homeless individuals. And we applaud that we work closely with them. And I don't want to not acknowledge that they have a, a huge impact in providing relief to those in need. But when you look at the scale of the homelessness crisis in New York City and elsewhere, it just boggles the mind that this has become normalized to the extent that it has, that this has become a profile of our city that we accept as a place that we can live. Um, things have gotten to a tipping point in, in certain cities. Um, you know, finally, in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, things have gotten so bad that they seem to have some political will to take more dramatic steps to do something about it. New York City is a little bit different because uh, the Coalition for the Homeless and the Legal Aid Society had brought a series of lawsuits that created a legal right to shelter. So you don't see the big tent cities in New York City that you do um, in places like LA and Miami and, and San Francisco. So the profile is a little different, but the, the underlying failure is the same, that we have allowed it to become acceptable for huge portions of our population to suffer to sleep on the streets. Um, we found ways of walking by that and turning our eyes of, of identifying those people as another, as you know, the homeless population um, and, and allowing it to be something that doesn't concern us and offend us every day. You know, my fear had always been that kids are gonna grow up 
and think that this is the way a city should be run. Yeah. Uh, they'll think that people sleeping on the street is a normal thing. And, and I have to say, once I had kids, my kids are four and seven, it really heartens me to see that the natural reaction of a child is to know that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, my kids see that and their first reaction is, why are we walking by them? Why aren't we bringing that person in to sleep on our couch, giving them our you know, spare space that we have in our room? So I know it is within the human heart to not accept this as the way things should be. The faith communities are supposed to be leaders in how that gets implemented on a larger societal basis. So while we have um, a considerable amount of engagement and help from members of congregations and houses of worship providing soup kitchens and private shelters, that's not going to solve the problem. That, that is necessary, but not sufficient. We need larger systemic change here. We need a change in how we view what is acceptable in our society. And it is supposed to be our religious leaders, the, the members of our faith community that are out there and convincing our elected leaders that this is not right. Where is the moral argument for ending homelessness in our city, in our state, and in our country? Where is the theological argument for doing that? We know that those are there. That is the basis being taking care of our fellow human beings is supposed to be the basis of, of any house of worship. And we are purportedly a very religious country. Where is the schism and where is the shortfall? Where is that gap? Where are the voices of the highest up uh, leaders of our faith community putting pressure on our elected leaders? Because it's not that we can't solve homelessness. We know how to solve homelessness. There are solutions that have been tried and tried again over the last four decades. It, it is for sure a complex problem and there's a lot of things, a lot of structural inequities that led to things being the way they are. But we know that permanent housing is the solution to homelessness. We know that by building more supportive housing, we could get the majority of people off the streets. We know that by giving rent subsidies, we could get people out of the shelters and put them into permanent housing. We know the solutions, but the political will isn't there. So what we need from the faith community, we need activism, we need advocacy, we need your voice heard. We need pressure on our elected officials to use the resources that we do have. We're a very wealthy city, a wealthy state, a wealthy country. We do have what we need to solve the problem. We're just not doing it. David, thank you for that. I think I hear you loud and clear that we need the moral will. Uh, uh, and we need the bold moral voices to step into what I say is this breach between the way things are and the way we know they are supposed to be, this gap between the society as it is and a more just future that is promised really uh, to us all and faith communities are supposed to be accountable to the just future and not accountable to our unjust present. And so uh, thank you for calling us to account, uh, to be that moral voice and to provide that moral leadership uh, when it's lacking. And we know that we can indeed solve this problem. David, we're at the end of our time and so much uh, that we could cover. And I really hope that this is just for many 
an enticement to learn more, but not only learn more, to get involved as advocates so that we don't, as long as there are people who are without a home, then we will never ever be prepared for the kind of pandemic that we are now experiencing because we will always have a situation where there will be people who are most vulnerable to the kind of pandemic that we are experiencing, which makes us all as a society uh, vulnerable. David, we don't want to return to normal. We don't want to return to normal. Normal was unacceptable. Is unacceptable. So I want to leave you with the last word that you would like us to hear, the last message uh, that you would like us to hear as we leave this conversation and move forward in such a way that we are committed not to returning to normal. Sure. Um, the way things have been are not the way things can continue. It is untenable. We cannot allow hundreds of thousands of our neighbors to suffer and die on the streets, which is exactly what is happening. We know the answer to homelessness. Um, something like a, a pandemic like this underscores more than ever that housing is healthcare. Mm. There's a real nexus here between healthcare and housing that because of the situation that we've allowed ourselves to get into has been relegating the half million homeless people that you referenced at the beginning of this conversation, Kelly, um, to very poor health outcomes, to contracting the disease, to perhaps dying from the disease. This is not the way it has to be. Let's hope that what we get out of this is a new sense of outrage for the injustices that have been and a new sense of camaraderie to work together and solve these problems once and for all. Thank you. Housing is healthcare. There's no better place to end. David, thank you for your voice. Thank you for your time. And most especially, thank you for your work. Thank you thank all you. for joining us. And I invite you back for future Facebook Live conversations on being church at a time of COVID.